Father God, we thank you for those times in each one of our experience where you have spoken to us, where your words come alive to us as we've read it and, and you've prompted us by your spirit as we've heard someone preach. Lord, we need those moments of your grace in our lives often and regularly. So we pray that you'd meet with us this evening and speak to us uh, through this passage from 1 Kings. Lord, by your spirit, make this word live for us this evening. Amen. A number of times recently, a brother or sister in Christ has come to me and we've had a conversation where they've explained how they've become disillusioned with a Christian leader or other. I've had quite a few of these conversations over the last few years. They tell me of how this person's played a a significant role in their lives. Sometimes it's even the person who led them to Christ in the first place. And certainly this person somehow through their their preaching or their pastoring or some other ministry has, has had a big influence on them. But now things have changed. This Christian leader has has fallen, has lost their way. Somehow or other, they they haven't proved to be uh, the encouragement that they once were. That's a common enough scenario if you take the, the whole of the church throughout the whole of time. It's a tragic one. It's tragic for the leader, for the person themselves who's fallen, And it's tragic, too, for those people who've been affected by that as they have put their trust in that leader. And it all begs an important question. Are we right to have heroes and people we look up to in the Christian life? To what extent should we put our trust in our leaders? That's a question I want to come back to a little bit later this evening because I think it flows out of of the the life story of Solomon, which we have been dealing with in these last weeks. First of all, we're going to finish looking at what the Bible says about Solomon. I suppose the, the point we've come to over these last couple of weeks is that a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom for Solomon. That's God's promise in chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. And this last section that we're looking at the end of chapter 11 shows us a little bit about how that actually works itself out. We learn first of all about opposition at the edges of Solomon's empire and then opposition right at the center of it. Proverbs 16 verse 7 says this, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. That proverb from Proverbs 16 is attributed to Solomon, and actually it describes much of Solomon's early reign. For much of his early reign, Solomon lived at peace with his enemies. Flick back with me to Solomon's uh, letter to King Hiram of Tyre, 1 Kings chapter 5. Flick back there with me, and you'll see what Solomon has to say for himself. He's explaining to, to King Hiram of Tyre why his father David wasn't able to build a temple. It's because David was involved in so many wars. Look at verse 4. Solomon says, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is no adversary or disaster. 
So Solomon's whole empire, and this is, this is a big empire at this stage, the biggest em- empire Israel ever had. Solomon's whole empire is at peace, and he claims to have no adversary or enemy. By the time we get to the end of Solomon's reign, that blessing has departed and the peace is fractured. So in verses 14 to 22, we learn about two adversaries of Solomon's enemies who previously hadn't caused significant problems, but now rise up. Um, The first one is Hadad. You'll be forgiven for not knowing these guys very well. I wasn't overly familiar with them until I studied this stuff this week. Hadad is a victim of the wars of David, Solomon's father. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read of a time when David went to war against Edom. He killed 18,000 Edomites. He sticks a garrison uh, in, in Edom, and he occupies that whole territory. So Hadad seems to have escaped from this. So he's, he's like a refugee, a guy who's escaped from Israel's military power in the past. He goes and he lives in Egypt, and he has a son there, and he names his son Genubath, which means stolen. What's he talking about? In, in those days, if you named your, your son with a particular name, quite often it had a, a meaning for your life. So he's talking here about something that was stolen is it the life of these 18,000 of his countrymen? Is it his own prospects of happiness stolen as he lived the life of a refugee? We're not sure, but it's pretty clear here that this guy's bitter against Israel, bitter against Solomon, and that bitterness has been uh, bubbling away beneath the surface while he's lived in Egypt. Well, we read in, in these verses that he, he leaves Egypt and goes back home to Edom. So here we have an enemy. Solomon, who previously had no enemies, has an enemy in Edom in the south. In verses 23 to 25, we're told of a second adversary for Solomon, and that's Rezin. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read of a time when David defeated his king, Hadadeser, the king of Zobah. Now, Rezin seems to have escaped from that battle um, or maybe escaped from his master later, but he's unwilling to live under Israel's rule. So he, he forms a bandit group and eventually he takes control of the city of Damascus, which is part of Israel's empire. So we read in verse 25, Rezin was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezin ruled in Aram and was hostile towards Jerusalem. Very quickly, these verses, 14 to 25, show us a massive change. For an empire that once was at peace, it's now under attack from the outside. Rezin opposes from Damascus in the north, and Hadad opposes Solomon from Edom in the south. There was once peace on all sides, but now there are enemies and war being made on Israel. As we come to the end of of this short series at the start of the book of Kings, 
it's a good time to remind ourselves of possibly the key theme that runs through the whole of this book, the sovereignty of God. Whenever you read this stuff, the kind of stuff that we're reading here this evening, it feels like we're just reading political history. When you read the whole book of Kings, it feels like a a political account, a, a military account of Israel's history. This number of different kings, the highs and the lows of their reigns. But when you read, when you read Kings with your eyes open, when you pay attention to what the authors say, you'll see actually that, that this isn't the story of countless different kings. This is the story of only one true king, our sovereign God. Everything that happens in these stories happens because it is the will of God. And we have thought about this before in the context of Solomon's life. Why was it, we asked, did Solomon and not some other son of David come to the throne in the first place? Because God willed it. Why did God grant wisdom to Solomon? Remember when he was already showing himself to be a compromised king? Because in his grace he had a mind to do that. Why did God bless this sinful leader? Do you remember the temple story of how Solomon built the temple? By this stage, the sin in, in Solomon's life is, is really beginning to gather momentum, and still God blesses him. He fills his temple with his presence. It's because God's chosen to do just that. And why in the end, this story that we're reading about here this evening, why does God tear the kingdom away from Solomon? in the end, because that's how he chooses to exercise his control. It's all about God, the true king, operating over and above the affairs of these seemingly powerful kings. But wait a minute, you might say, um, Christoph, Hadad and Rezin, they're the pagan leaders of pagan nations. So surely they don't fall under the sovereignty of God. Surely they aren't at the center of God's plans that we're talking about just now. Surely everything going on here is just circumstantial. It's just kingdoms bumping up against one another in the way that kingdoms do. Have another look with me at verse 14. Do you see there the claim that the author of Kings makes? He says that the Lord raised up. Hadad the Edomite. Look down to verse 23. The author claims there that God raised up Rezin, son of Eliada. So in a way that I'm not going to be able to explain to you, but in a way that I am going to ask you to take seriously, God is at work here. The peace that there once was in Solomon's kingdom was there because God ordained that it would be for that time. The the enemies that rise against him rise now because we're told that God ordains that that will be the way. He rises them up. Folks, if we find that hard to believe, and I think it is a stretch, I think we need to allow our minds to enter into that. We need to, to work with that a little bit. I think it's, it's going to be equally as hard for us because we live in a world today where so much seems out of control. We live in a world where, where so many enemies seem to rise up against good and godly people. 
there's so much power that seems to be at work in the world that seems to be totally at odds with the kind of power that God would want to establish. Atomic bombs in North Korea, Al-Qaeda at work, the axis of evil. There's so much out there that, that unsettles us, that seems chaotic. The credit crunch, swine flu, whatever else it is. It seems as though God couldn't possibly be in control of those kinds of things. But folks, I think that's precisely the claim of the biblical text at this point. It's God, in this case, who raises enemies up. It's God who allows these these difficult and unpalatable circumstances to unfold. As we read God's word tonight, we're reminded of all of this. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when the wrong kinds of people appear to be in control, God's word is unrelenting and tells us that God is in control. We've seen here in the the first part of, of the passage we're looking at this evening that Solomon is under attack from the outside. He's under attack also more crucially from the the center of his kingdom. Verses 26 to 40 tell the story of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. We're told that he's one of Solomon's officials. He was a man of standing, a guy who was in charge uh, of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. So this guy's working on the big construction projects of Jerusalem of the time. And it's one day that he's he's leaving Jerusalem and he bumps into Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh. And it's, a, it's one of those scenes in the Bible that's supposed to trigger off your memory of a previous scene. It's a passage that reminds us of the time when, when Samuel met Saul to tell him that he had been rejected as a king of Israel. In that case, Samuel's garment was ripped and he told Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. Well, today, at this moment, when Ahijah meets Uh, with Jeroboam. There's another robe torn. This time it's torn into 12 pieces, each of those pieces to represent one of the tribes of Israel. Jeroboam's given 10 of these pieces, uh, and Solomon, we're told, is to retain one for the sake of David and the city of Jerusalem. Folks, I don't know about you, but this is one of those passages in the Bible that frustrates me because I like the maths to be right. I don't like reading about 12 pieces being split into a 10 and a 1, but I have to live with it. It's the way the the author writes it. When you read on in the story, you discover that actually two tribes uh, remain under the control of Solomon's uh, line, further down the line, the tribes of Judah and of Benjamin. So because of his idolatry, and we thought about this last week, this is all that's going to be left to the family of David and his son Solomon. Two of the 12 tribes will remain with him. In verse 33, we're told that all of this is a judgment of God on Israel because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, Chemosh, and Molech. And an interesting thing to notice there in verse 33 is that it's written in the plural. They have forsaken me. It's not Solomon alone. It's Solomon and his people. We're we're going to be thinking in a moment again. We're going to come back to this question of leadership 
And what kind of leaders can we trust and who can we follow? It's an important question because we see here that when we follow the wrong kind of leadership, we ourselves walk away from God and come under his judgment. At the end of chapter 11, as we come here to the end of Solomon's life and the end of this short series, I don't know about you, but even though I'd read Kings before and was somewhat prepared for this, I think, I think I've been overwhelmed by the sense of tragedy in the Solomon story and the sense of anti-climax because it starts so promisingly very early in, in his reign, chapter 4, verse 2, the dying King David reminds Solomon of a promise that God had made to him. If your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you'll never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. What a promise. Solomon, if you and the guys after you, if you walk with me, I'll be with you. I'll give you a king on the throne forever. And, and Solomon does okay at the start. Do you remember he, he was offered anything he wanted from God and God, God said, whatever you want, Solomon, I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom to govern the people. A brilliant, brilliant thing. He builds a magnificent temple for the, the presence of God. But all the while, we noticed last week how the sin and different types of sin begin to well up in his life. In chapter four, chapter 9, verse 4, God reaffirms his promise. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and, desert, and observe all my decrees and laws, I'll establish your royal throne over Israel forever. By the time we get to the end of chapter 11, we have a, a twin sense of, of regret and longing. We have a regret about the life of Solomon because it's, it seems like there's so much wonderful possibility. The temple, the wealth, the empire, the queen of Sheba coming, the nations flowing to see God's people at their best. It, it all seems so promising, but it all ends in regret. Solomon's life goes off the rails. He doesn't love God the way his father David did. He's not a man after God's own heart. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, there's a, a growing sense of longing. When will Israel finally have a king worthy of their calling? When will there finally be a leader that we can look up to, one who will lead us to God and in God's ways? Folks, without giving too much away, God's people are going to be waiting a long, long time. The books of First and Second Kings tell us that this never really worked. That kingship, 500 years of kingship, 40-something kings, it didn't do what the people had hoped it would do. Even the bright spots, Hezekiah, Josiah, they're not very bright. It turns out that human beings, no matter how gifted they are or however well-intentioned they are, 
don't seem to be able to provide us with reliable, godly leadership. Kings doesn't satisfy us in the end. It's a book that as we read it, we have only a growing and a growing and a growing sense of longing. So God's people are going to have to wait these next 500 years or so during the reigns of these kings. And still, David won't have a son worthy of him on the throne. First Israel and then Judah are going to be dragged off into exile. And still, David won't have a son worthy of him on the throne. And when they return from exile, they'll wait for another 430 years, just about as long as they'd been in Egypt. And still, there won't be anyone worthy to take this throne. But then, quietly, unnoticeably at first, there'll be a small glimpse of hope on the horizon. A young preacher in the backwater of Galilee. He'll start to preach with words that make it sound like you're listening to the very voice of God. He'll start to make lame people walk and and open blind people's eyes. He'll start to make people believe that that all these things that God promised and all these things that he hinted at in, in some of the early kings might once more become true. Matthew tells us in chapter 15 of his gospel of a time when this young Galilean preacher is moving through Canaanite territory and a woman calls out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's suffering terribly from demon possession. In chapter 10 of his gospel, Mark has a blind man, the son of Timaeus, sitting on the road out of Jericho. And he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Luke 18, it's a a beggar at the roadside. How does he get Jesus' attention? He calls him the son of David. Jesus understands himself to be the son of David. And some of the people around him are beginning to recognize it. He hears the cry of poor and suffering. This son of David, he hears all the stuff that Solomon couldn't hear anymore as he got wealthier and wealthier and more powerful and more powerful. Jesus is the kind of king and leader who brings healing and hope, not one who builds military bases and accumulates power. Folks, we're thinking about kings as we study first and second kings. Jesus talked endlessly about a kingdom, about the kingdom that he was going to establish. It had nothing to do with palaces or thrones or armies or gold or any other kind of power. It was a kingdom where the sick get healed, where the blind get their sight, where the lame get help to walk. It's a kingdom where the king comes to serve. When Jesus was king, 
operating in his kingdom, he used his power to bless the blind, the broken, the poor, and the lame. He blessed those who needed it most. Jesus was a servant king. Finally, David has the son that Israel's been waiting for all these years. Contrast Jesus Christ with Solomon. Solomon, who uses slave labor to build military bases to house the armies that will guard his wealth. And Jesus has nowhere to lay his head that he might serve the poor. Folks, reading Kings doesn't satisfy in the end. It only serves to to heighten our sense of longing, our longing that will never be fulfilled until it's Jesus, the King of Kings. I come back to our earlier question, and with this I close. Who are to be our heroes in this life with God? Who are to be the leaders we can trust? Well, if you listen to God's word as we have seen it this evening and throughout this series in the life of Solomon, we see that it's not Solomon we can trust. Nor was it David or Saul, the first of Israel's kings, nor will it be any of the other kings who come after them. All of these guys, all the leaders of God's people throughout history are only members of a supporting caste. At their very best, they only give us a glimpse of the reality and the purity and the truth that's in Jesus. When Peter preached before the Sanhedrin in the aftermath of Pentecost, he put it like this. Salvation's found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul, too, was clear that Jesus is the only hero in Christian faith. In Colossians 1, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, And in him all things hold together. Folks, in the era of the million-selling paperback Christian writer, of the the million-selling CD worship leader, in the era of the Christian megachurch and the conference speaker, It's important that we recognize that no Christian leader is ever a hero. The role of the Christian leader is simply and always to step aside and point to Christ. Paul understands this well. He appreciates human nature. He knows that when you're in a position of leadership, people look to you, but Paul won't let them. Paul says... Follow me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
It is legitimate in the end for people to look to leaders, to learn from them, maybe even to seek to emulate them in small ways, but only insofar as they point us to Jesus and only for so long as they continue to point us to Jesus. Folks, it's human nature to look for models and for examples and heroes. But there's only one hero for God's people, and that is Jesus Christ. As you go through your life of discipleship, as you encounter different kinds of leadership, wherever you go, please don't misplace, put a misplaced trust in the leader of whatever community you're a part of. I recognize that I'm speaking as a leader in this place. Please always pay attention to your leaders, that they're people who are pointing you to Christ. Walk with them and, and pursue them only for as long as you're sure that you're pointing, they're pointing you to Christ. There's only one king in the end, one leader worthy of our, our trust and our following in the walk with, with God, and that is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to the end of this time we've spent thinking of the life of Solomon, it's with regret that we recognize the frailty of human leadership. Lord, there are times when we'd love it if our heroes were closer to home, if we could throw our lot in entirely with this man or this woman who impresses us so dearly. But Lord, you're teaching us here in your word that that will never do. That you and you alone are to be the object of our full allegiance. That Jesus and only he is the leader whom we can trust. Lord, we pray that you would, would guard us in this area of our lives. Lord, last week we asked that you would help us to guard our hearts that we might not become divided like Solomon. This week we ask that you would guard us as, as we follow our leaders, that we might not be like all the people of Israel who followed after Solomon. Lord, help us to follow only those who will point us to Jesus. Help us to follow them only to the extent that they will help us flourish as disciples of your Son and our Savior. Lord, we thank you for your word. But above all, we thank you for Jesus, the King of kings, and we bow before him and him alone. Amen.